If both parties know that you are critically ill, sir, this would warrant you taking the day off of work. But the bottom line still is you're responsible to the patient. Usually when you stand in front of a patient and say, you could die, at that point, they usually don't argue with you. All right. We're, we're up to our butt in snow and everything else here in Michigan, as we always give the weather report first. Uh, I'm sure everything is beautiful in California, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we have the new star in medical legal emergency medicine work with us today. He's been on the show before. I'm tired of people writing in saying, bring him back, bring him back, bring him back. Uh, so we've, we're bringing him back now. I hope you're happy. Uh, but clearly, in the last uh, five, six, seven years, the book that has uh, sort of run away with the crowd is uh, is Mike Weinstock's, which is now what are we on now, Mike? Our fourth book. Yes, the fourth book. When will it? When's it coming out? It should be out either February or March of this year, 2020. Yes, and I've been very pleased to be a part of Bounce Backs. I'm not pleased that people are always saying, uh, Greg, uh, turn that over to somebody else and let Mike and smarter guys do it, all these sorts of things. But again, we're very happy to have uh, a new Bounce Backs out because all the residents use it. And uh, so we're pleased to have you today on the show. Yes, welcome, Michael. Uh, thanks so much for working up these cases. Uh, these cases represent a couple of chapters in your book, and uh, I must acknowledge that last night I read these, and I was really impressed, really impressed by the first case that had 90-some references. I mean, this is like you, you're the new Rosen in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no, but I, I really... It, it was... The, there's so much up-to-date medicine in these uh, cases that I thought it was just terrific. All right. Yeah. yeah, Peter Rosen is actually part of the second book, the Medical Legal one. He had some commentary in there, and uh, I didn't know him well, but uh, but it was an honor. I mean, he obviously has uh, done so much uh, for the profession. These cases that we have here today, there's two of them, and they're the actual case. They are not only the actual case, but the actual documentation that was recorded by the provider. And the first case went to deposition. There was an adverse outcome. And the second case also is one that even though it didn't actually go to deposition, certainly could have because there's some pretty salient issues. So is it okay if we talk about the 47-year-old the woman first? Because there are just so many great teaching points, not only for medicine, but also for the documentation. Sure. Yeah. So this is a case at the hospital where I used to practice. And interestingly, the patient was cared for by a physician that I had worked with for over 10 years, really one of the best emergency physicians that I've ever ever had the pleasure of working with. So the short version is that it's a 47-year-old woman who had gone to her primary care physician office the morning of her ED visit, and she'd been prescribed Zoloft 
and been prescribed an antibiotic, Avalox, for her sinus infection, what was diagnosed <laughs> and <laughs> as a sinus infection. We won't really go into that right now, of course. But at any rate, later that day, she began to have some symptoms of tightness of the throat and some feeling of lightheadedness. So she came into the emergency department and was initially placed in the room that we typically use for mental health, it was like a room with a door, didn't have all kinds of like things that the patients could have harmed themselves with. But it was because the ED was so full and she was seen by one of the physician assistants, also someone I'd worked with for years and just someone I have complete confidence in, does a great job, who saw the patient. And what I wanted to do is follow, as we discussed today, similar to how this new bounce back critical care book goes, because whereas the first three books really focused on that initial visit. This book found, focuses on the bounce back visit and the different decision points as the patient decompensates when they return to the ED. So the first real main point, I think, for our risk management monthly audience is this concept that Pat Crosscarry has spoken about, this triage queuing, where we either become more concerned about a patient because they're placed in a trauma room, just for example, or less concerned because they're pay, placed in a non-acute room. So this patient was placed in a non-acute room. And what I want to just sort of get your thoughts on is how we as clinicians, how we can really take some of those biases maybe that we have based on even the geographic location of the patient and make sure that we don't either do extra testing or not enough testing based on where that patient is placed. Yeah, well, there's there's no problem with understanding when they say they're in the non-acute side, or they we put them over in rapid care or whatever it is, we look at the cases different because we assume that the other health professionals who are like us have made a decision that this is not as sick a case. Now, whether that's right or wrong, um, I think that's true, wouldn't you say, Rick? Yeah, there's clearly a bias, uh, that's for sure. I would wonder, uh, Michael, at the time, did you have anything like uh, doctor in triage? Or uh, who was doing the triage? Triage is being done by nurses. And just to give a little bit extra information and to really make it more difficult for this provider when they saw the patient, the patient had come in by squad. This was at 10.33 p.m. When the paramedics had arrived at the home, the patient was lying on the floor. She was alert and oriented. But a family member told the paramedics that she, quote, had an anxiety attack after she took her Zoloft for the first time that day, end quote. So when she actually arrived in the emergency department, she came in with that chief complaint from the paramedics of an anxiety attack, which is probably she, why she was placed in this non-acute room in the first place. But well, that the, was always the, the story. Whenever we saw someone come in from squad who had a paper bag over their face uh, because that was going to take care of their hyperventilation syndrome, and we found out that they had a uh, collapsed lung or something like that, uh, th this, this way of getting into uh, prejudgment is not just a doctor problem. This happens all the way along, and as soon as they use the term Zoloft, what do people think? You're a nutcase. <laughs> and, and so that's the initial thought of any health person who's there. 
Well, I think that, yeah, there's the prejudice, but I also thought that this lady had uh, hives all over the place. I mean, you know, that, that's a clear-cut discriminator. Yeah, so I hadn't really gone into how she looked once she got in the room. This was really more just about the bed placement. And I make this sort of joke. It's more of a gallows humor type of joke, but where the nurse tells you, oh, you know, why are you so concerned the patient is anxious? Whereas I might respond, well, of course she's anxious. She's dying. That's a very anxiety-provoking situation, right? So, you know, you think to yourself, um, that act of dying, of course that's going on. But what is the underlying thing causing that anxiety, of course? So I will tell you this additional information, just extending a little bit further. Yeah, so she was placed in this room at... Um, and, and seen within really several minutes. I mean, within the first probably 10 minutes or so, she was seen, then the note was put after. But it did, but the physician assistant did document a diffuse global red non-raised rash, which did blanch. And they said this was consistent with an allergic reaction. And then they documented the fact that it was a likely allergic reaction to the Zoloft that she was prescribed and that they would treat, which sort of moves us to our next decision point because as we all know, the patient gets put in the room and there's like paramedics there, there's a report that's given, there is the nurse who is recording medications and vital signs and all. Well, when the vital signs were done, the patient was afebrile. They had a normal heart rate, 75, normal respiratory rate, but they had a blood pressure of 73 systolic and the O2 sat on room air was 89%. So what happened is, is that the physician assistant said, listen, you know, we need to do two things. One is we need to move this patient to the major medical room like we consider one of our trauma rooms, but where we saw major medical cases also, and that we need to try to collaborate and get the physician involved at the same time. So what happened is the physician came in, they agreed with the allergic reaction component and wrote for 0.3 milligrams of epinephrine, Benadryl 50 milligrams IV, Pepsid 20 milligrams IV, and Decadron 10 milligrams IV. So I thought this might be a nice opportunity to discuss based on you know the experience that collectively the three of us have. And I think it's probably embarrassing that's over, I'm sure, 100 years of collective experience. And uh, I, I'm dating myself with you guys now. I can do that. On my 10th uh, episode, I went back and looked, my 10th episode I've recorded with you guys with Risk Management Monthly. But um, with all the experience that we have, you know, typically, in my experience, these are pretty straightforward. Even with really bad allergic reactions, you give them the medication, you know, they get the, the fluids, all this kind of stuff. In general, patients get better quicker. So I wanted to take this opportunity to break and think about, first of all, which patients might not necessarily respond to our treatment. And then secondly, how we'd like to further proceed as far as um, checking back on the patient, making sure they get their medicines in a timely manner. These are two different sort of situations where I find that things can get tripped up and a patient can have an adverse outcome, even though we are doing sort of, quote, everything right. Yeah. And it's my experience that patients do uh, re uh, turn around quite quickly when you give them uh, these medications. And I think only recently it's made, been made really, really clear that the one that matters most is not the steroids, not the uh, antihistamines, but the epi, 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 epi. Um, uh, that that's that uh, is uh, I think it's important to to focus on that and then the issue that you brought up is 
Well, why would somebody not respond very well when you gave them uh, the standard treatment that we're used to giving? And, you know, I think there's two uh, potentials there. One of them is that um, this is a reaction that is basically going, is rapidly getting worse quickly, and that this is an overwhelming reaction that you are starting to intervene in. But you have, your treatment has been, inadequate, you needed more of the drug, more frequently to give the drug, something like that, or you're not responding to epinephrine for uh, uh, some reason or other. And yet now it seems like the entire world has uh, some beta blocker in the water of everybody. You know, it can't hurt. It's good for your uh, heart rate. It's good for your anxiety. It's good for your blood pressure. It's good for everything. Your skin. Exactly. (laughs) I, I I think it would be very hard for an expert to claim that the giving of those medications with what you've just seen is inappropriate. That's exactly what I would have done because on a statistical basis, that's what this patient is having. And the downside of that, is that going to do you a lot of harm? Not much of it. I've, n- I've never seen anybody do badly with any of those drugs that I, that I know of. Uh, I mean, could she have something else, a PE, this, that, all that's true, but I don't think that those drugs are going to necessarily make her worse. And most of the time when it's an allergic reaction, that's the cocktail we give. So I've come up with a list of a few things because I completely agree with you, Greg. They did a, a fantastic job with this, but a few things that can trip us up and maybe just something that we should go through in our head a little bit when we have this patient. First of all, I find that, you know, a zoster rash is pathognomonic, you know, a poison ivy rash is pathognomonic. We so quickly and, and in, a, in a very good way, you know, go to that diagnosis and the same with anaphylaxis. It seems like within like two seconds, I can diagnose the anaphylaxis. So the first thing I just call caution us on is thinking about it a second time. So for example, the rash might look characteristic, but I mean, there are other things that a rash and hypotension can give you. Meningococcemia, just one example, of course. So, you know, pushing on the rash and they did a good job with that, making sure it's blanchable. So the first thing is certainly making sure that we have a correct diagnosis. The second thing is, and Ricky, you were talking about this, but the patient does have a history of hypertension and she does take propranolol. So in a very good way, very quickly, within, I mean, minutes, they realized that that was going on and the patient did receive glucagon also in addition to these other medications. The third thing that I found that patients can sometimes get tripped up with a bit with this is, you know, the nurse is so involved with, you know, writing down the medication lists and asking them the, you know, questions if they've like, you know, traveled to an Ebola containing country, you know, and if they feel safe at home, which are important questions, right? Of course, but that doesn't substitute. I mean, you can make the most brilliant diagnosis, but if you don't get the therapy started in a timely fashion, it doesn't really help you at all. So I like to not only order those medications, but to make sure with this type of patient, this type of critical, very potentially life-threatening kind of patient, that I check back and make sure that the medications that I've ordered have been given. And frequently I'll find that, I mean, and no, you know, degradation to the nurse, but that, you know, they have so much stuff going on and so much stuff to record that they haven't actually given the therapy that's been helpful. If you've ordered five medicines, why not just verbally say, hey, just like you're saying, Rick, you know, give the epi first. You know, the decadron might take four or six hours, wanders two or whatever it is to take effect, but the epi, that's a minute by minute kind of medication. Correct. 
So that's something with this case, which was well done, but I thought it was a nice opportunity to talk about some ways that we can make patients safer. Are you guys ready for a continuation of the case? Sure. Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, documented um, medications have been given. They did check back on the patient. Uh, patient remains groggy. Blood pressure has not improved. And chest x-ray was done, a portable chest x-ray. Now, this is read by a radiologist, and it's read obviously without knowing about the patient themselves. So a little bit curious, this says extensive pulmonary edema. That's how that gets read. They further document that the patient is pale, they're diaphoretic, and they begin to vomit. And at this point, the provider is obviously incredibly concerned. The patient has received their epinephrine, and that's more of an injection, but they haven't yet been able to start an IV. So the nurse can't start the IV, goes to get a tech who's good with the ultrasound. And I don't know, I'm sure our listeners would agree that why is it that there's like one person in the whole department that knows how to use an ultrasound <laughs> to put in an IV when that is like so effective, this this therapy? I mean, every single person, like like the housekeepers, like the administrators, they should all know how to do an ultrasound. I think the training course is like 15 minutes long, you know? Well, you know, <laughs> so, I, I, I visited a friend of mine who was in a hospital, a big, big hospital, and uh, there, was, there was trouble getting his IV started. And I asked, is there somebody around who can do the ultrasound? This is a 500-bed hospital. There was one person that they summoned to do the ultrasound. And it was like, holy smokes. I mean, this is like uh, everybody should know how to do this. If you're going to... Have the authority to start an IV. You should be able to do this and have the equipment readily available. It's like this is ridiculous. Yeah, well, Rick, if it's a friend of yours, he probably wasn't worth saving anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. You ought to be able to get the uh, line in. But the other thing is, when you have somebody who's going downhill this fast, something is going to be sacrificed. It's either charting, minute-to-minute -minute charting, or it's the care of the patient. And I see that all the time in legal cases. Well, uh, how come you didn't write this and this and this? And the doctor reasonable answer is because I was saving the patient's life at that moment. Uh, none of us have perfect charts when everything is turning to stool. None of us. You know, I had a case just recently that I looked at and the physician made the allegation that, you know, they were caring for this patient, but they also had all these other patients to care for and tried to, and look, you know, we are all, I mean, I just worked a shift yesterday and the day before and probably the two busiest shifts I've worked at, at Adena and I, honestly in the last three years. And, you know, you're sort of running between room to room and oftentimes your shifts are like that, but not always. And if we're going to sort of make some allegation, well, I couldn't care for that patient as well as I would have liked to because of the other patients there, realize that that information is discoverable. So I actually have a, from this case I was talking about, I have the triage log when the patients presented the other patients and when the physician saw those patients. And you can see with this patient who had a misdiagnosis of their chest pain, that the patients preceding them were abdominal pain, suicide attempt, eye complaints, and the patients following were, you know, knee pain and some other similarly benign type of things. So realize that if you have 
three traumas or Greg, the story you like to tell or that you've told in the past of this, this bus accident that happened, that's a different situation. But if you're going to try to make the allegation that you didn't care for a patient as well as you otherwise could have, because it was so busy, realize that that's discoverable. Now, let me just get you guys a little bit of a Fisher cut bait sort of moment here, as far as the IV line, because what happens with this patient is in addition to the fact that they're now diaphoretic, they're pale, they're groggy, which is not the most common situation with anaphylaxis, the patient is also becoming progressively more hypoxemic. Now, even on four liters, the O2 sat is 88%, and they still don't have an IV line. So let me get you guys a little bit of a, a fisher cut bait, you know, sink or swim type of moment. Uh, Greg, maybe I could ask you first, at what point when you don't have an IV and you need an IV, obviously like this patient, do you just sort of say, this is a seemingly well 47-year-old patient, I'm drilling an IO or I'm putting in the central line. You know, where do we make this decision? Because this patient is spiraling very, very quickly, but we also don't want to drill through her bone if we don't have to. So do you have a minute by, uh, like like a, a number of minutes that you allow to go by, Greg, or a number of attempts? What is your action plan with this? <clears throat> Yeah, it, it has to do with the tightness of my sphincter at that okay. <laughs> moment in time. And when I watch them going downhill, I have been very lucky in my career, uh, but I was always very good at the anatomy of putting in a central line. And as far as I'm concerned, when I see that blood coming back through a central line, I'm in good shape. Even the I.O., uh, is tricky sometimes. I'm not always convinced I'm where I'm supposed to be. So what I would do with a person who's dying, and that's who you're describing here, I mean, could I potentially do some harm? I suppose, but you know what? What I know is they're going in the wrong direction. So I think, you know, using the three or four attempts, and, it's, and often we have two nurses trying to get the line in, when they're not getting that in, then I'm going to put in a central line. I, I think we're, we, we've become too afraid of this. And as uh, Rick points out, now that we have other methodology to use, uh, we can get the central line without giving them a pneumothorax. Yeah, I think that that's uh, fundamentally the, the way to go. I think that IOs, you know, they tell us we can put anything into an I.O. that uh, you could give into a vein. But fundamentally, I'm not so sure you could give large volumes of fluids that we want to give here uh, to help this woman's blood pressure. It's now 70. She's got this capillary leak syndrome going on here big time, and it's reflected in her lungs. It's reflected in her gut. She's vomiting because, you know, her gut's now a demitis. It's not just the skin. It's not just localized to the skin. And um, she's having a whopper of a reaction. Now, you know, obviously epinephrine can be given IM, uh, and, and, but this person's kind of shutting down. But that's, that's clearly you could do that uh, while, you're, you're, while you're trying to give the other thing because that's the key med, med here, and it can be given I, uh, IM. 
So this patient had initially presented at 10 to 59. She was seen by the PA. She was moved to the trauma room. And they did actually get the IV line at approximately 11.38. So, you know, 39 minutes after arrival, but for a critical patient, you know, that's a little bit longer, obviously, than any of us would prefer. So I'm going to go on and tell you where what, what happens next. So the patient is still hypotensive. She's hypoxemic. And now she's altered. And they put a non-rebreather mask on her at the 88% on the four liters, but her OTSAT only goes up to 91%. So now we have some pretty significant data that this patient is going down fast and things are not going good. However, now with our IV line, the physician decides to start an epinephrine drip. So they have the IV, they put her at two micrograms per minute, they give an additional glucagon two milligrams, and they also give a duoneb. Now, realize that the chest x-ray had shown this pulmonary edema. They also gave a call to the intensivist. So I'm going to come back to that in just a second. They did an ABG, and I will tell you, for me, I am ordering like almost no ABGs. I'm a total VBG, VBG combining that with the pulse ox kind of guy. However, they did, and good for them, showed a pH 7.24, PCO2 of 40, and a PO2 of 43. So this lady definitely is in trouble. Yep. They did, just like you had said, Greg, place a femoral line uh, or a central line in the right femoral. <coughs> and um, then they decided to intubate the patient. Obviously, uh, it'd be nice to do that now before she actually completely closes off her airway, for example. So the patient was given Atomidate 20 milligrams and succinylcholine 100 milligrams. However, after three attempts, and I told you that this is one of my most trusted colleagues and a person I would be very, very happy caring for any of my family members, tries three times and is unable to intubate the patient. They had a stat page to anesthesia. They came to the emergency department and they were also unable to intubate the patient, even trying to do this with a bougie. I don't know based on the documentation if video was used or not. I don't think that that was the case. But at any rate, uh, soon after the intubation attempts, the patient vomited. Uh, her blood pressure systolic is now 78. But what I wanted to discuss with you guys, and this is our next sort of decision and conversation point here is, you know, we know this is going to be or anticipate it might be a difficult intubation. Medical legally, we have anesthesia in-house. We also have, hopefully, comfort with our own skills. And the very weird thing about airway, the fact that anesthesia are like the airway experts, except they don't crike, which is like totally bizarre to me. Again, something you could probably learn in 15 minutes in a sort of sim lab, right? You know, but they don't do it. We do do it. So sometimes you could have, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen, but medical legally, where do we go? And Rick, I'd be interested in your thoughts to, you know, answer this one first, I guess, is where do we go when we have that airway expert and hopefully we are airway experts, of course, also, but with something difficult, do we page them before our initial attempt with a case like this? Or do we sort of notify them? Or is it going to be like, hey, you know what? The patient is paralyzed. We're bagging them. They might vomit, you know, do a stat page overhead, not realizing or even knowing if they happen to be in a crash section or something like that upstairs and are even available at all. So well, uh, what do you think? Well, from a medical legal point of view, the uh, sooner the better. Uh, that you call somebody, but from a practical point of view, uh, you uh, uh, have you have to not cry wolf, and so it's like uh, 
there, there's some of your own ego involved in this thing, and maybe that should be put aside here because the fact of the matter is that uh, help uh, in these critical cases is nobody's going to fault you for asking for help uh, uh, in, in a situation like this. And if it turns out you don't need it, well, fine. And if you do need it, it's there. And the fact that the anesthesiologist was also unable to intubate this patient, it, reflects on the fact that neither of these people could be incompetent or, or, or having a bad day. So it really reflects the case has gotten really very difficult. And if anything, I think it basically for the Monday morning quarterback will say, well, that's, that's all the reason that you should have done it sooner. It's, it's always going to be you did it too late. Right, it, exactly. But I'll, I'll tell you this. If you've tried two or three times – they should be opening up the crike set as the anesthesiologist is coming in the room. Because if I had trouble, and I've intubated you know, several thousand people in my career, now the anesthesiologist is having trouble getting it. Go, go put something in the airway. And it's, it's right there. It's not far down. Um, I've never seen anybody you know, never seen their carotid artery slit or anything like that by doing that. Um, you're kind of playing for all the marbles here. And uh, this isn't this isn't going right. If if I'm the one who's going down, do whatever you can to stick something in there and uh, give, give me some oxygen. Well, you can just picture yourself at the bedside in the ED in the shoes of this emergency physician where Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Right. Everything that they're doing right is not actually working. And not only that, but probably after midnight at this point is when your staffing is going down. Also, they probably have a whole ED of other patients to see at the same time, too. So just, you know, even talking about it on this podcast is causing me a little bit of stress just thinking about <laughs> sitting in the shoes of this of this physician. So I'm going to tell you what happens next with the patient, the hypotension. And I think maybe even questioning the veracity of their initial diagnosis makes them think, well, we just need to sort of throw the kitchen sink at this patient because everything is going poorly. So they give some sodium bicarb because of the acidosis on the ABG. They start the patient on some antibiotics, which are levofloxacin and azithromycin. And they, um, when the succinylcholine wears off, continue with the oxygenation. And then eventually they, uh, with an ENT kit at the bedside, are able to place an LMA in the patient. And then eventually with a fiber optic laryngoscope are able to intubate the patient with the number seven tube at 2.42 in the morning. So remember she came in right around 11 o'clock at night. So she now has been in the emergency department for quite some time. Unfortunately, what happens is despite the fact that she was hypotensive, she was hypoxemic, but despite the fact that they now have, you know, resuscitated-ish her condition, she is sent up to the intensive care unit, but within the next 24 hours, unfortunately, expires. And a lawsuit did ensue from this. So before I tell you about the... Um, theory and the uh, allegations from the plaintiff, just some further thoughts on medicine or what we can take away from this case as far as 
you know, prospectively when we see this type of patient in the future, how we can make them safer and practice better medicine with this kind of case. I, I would say one thing about giving them antibiotics, it didn't probably hurt this patient at all, but it wasn't going to save this patient at that time. If it took me 10 more seconds or 20 more seconds to get into the airway because of they're tied up giving antibiotics, that's not a good thing. I, I, I know you want to do everything, but it ought to be things that are within reason and have a statistical chance of turning this patient around. And antibiotics don't at this moment in time is, is my feeling about it. Well, it may have actually contributed to the problem in that uh, uh, she had a sinus infection and I think her doctor had given her some uh, quinolone for it. And I think they yes. gave her another quinolone in the emergency department, which might potentially have been adding um, flames to the fire here. It was like, why, why would you, why'd you, why, why would you ever do that? It's like, if it's a mistake, it's going to be a very, very serious mistake to, uh, to give that. Now, it may, it may, it may, in that, it may not be what she was allergic to, but we know that people tend to be allergic to antibiotics. We don't think that they're particularly allergic to Zoloft. I mean, we don't have a lot of experience with Zoloft, but we know about antibiotics. So yeah. I think that uh, that was unfortunate that that happened there. I think the other thing, too, is that uh, district giving this person fluids in a situation where she's leaking all over the place uh, is not necessarily the only thing that we could do. I mean, there is the idea we could give her some kinds of uh, vaso, uh, you know, vasoconstricting drugs in a, in a hope that we can get the blood pressure up. We generally don't like to do that, but here it, it may be necessary because the fluids don't seem to be doing the job. And you got to be careful about overloading this person because they're, they're just leaking all over the place. Yeah. Let me, let me review my 50 years of, uh, uh, of experience with vasoconstrictives. It's bad. Anytime you need a vasoconstrictive in this kind of situation, things aren't going well, Rick. Well, we already know this person's not going well. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Right. Exactly. So here's the allegations of the plaintiff. And um, actually, just speaking to your to your point, that's going to be one of the allegations there. But the first allegation was that the patient needed to be intubated by midnight, about an hour after her presentation, but she was not intubated until almost three hours later. The second point was that as a result of this, she suffered significant hypoxemic damage to her heart and other bodily organs resulting in her death. And then thirdly, that the antibiotics, the levofloxacin and the um, azithromycin. azithromycin that were given, yeah, um, they, uh, especially, I mean, obviously, of course, the levofloxacin has what, how they termed this, have a known cross-reactivity to the avalox that might have been the cause or contributed or made her anaphylaxis worse, thus potentiating or prolonging it. Now, I would say this, uh, this physician valiantly tried to do everything they could, but, and I'm not saying that they did anything wrong with the antibiotics, but I sort of agree with what you guys are saying. You know, anytime that there's so many things going on, so many other patients to see, and we realize, you know, through that concept of metacognition, where we're sort of monitoring our own thought-making process, 
and realizing potentially when it could be prone to error. Well, when that's occurring, we want to really think about anything that we're doing and if we have been able to explore all the different um, potential risks of that. So for example, checking the allergy list, et cetera, et cetera. Probably the Avalox was not on her allergy list. And the reason that it wasn't was because the fact that she, um, she had only taken it and they didn't really know that she was allergic to it just yet. The other thing is um, that, you know, that, that, uh, that they brought up with um, the intubated by midnight um, and they alleged that because of this hypoxemia, but the fact is the patient never actually truly became hypoxemic. Um, Rick, what, what is your thought on this case? Because she went to a non-rebreather, but she did have a stat that stayed at 91%. Well, you know, I think that uh, 91% is, uh, is, is pretty good. I don't know. Uh, when she did her blood gases, uh, O2 was uh, 40, 40%. Um, forty. Uh, so I thought that the oxygen was lower than her sat. Uh, actually, I'm not quite sure what may have uh, caused that to occur. But it just sounds like the, she's having more and more difficult uh, difficulty in ventilating, and um, basically, she's getting the best you can do in terms of oxygenation. It was kind of a clever idea for them to come up with the idea of doing an uh, LMA to. Uh, facilitator ventilation but th this is going to be a tough case because uh her lungs are quite wet now whether in fact she's going to be able to be um turn the turn the bend by the time this has gotten this far uh th this is a really 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 nasty case and you know getting back to when people should be intubated uh you're you're never going to be faulted for intubating somebody too soon. You always be faulted for, for being too late. But we don't want to necessarily jump the gun and we don't want to paralyze people where there's a risk of so, uh, so being uh, causing them harm because they're having some difficulty with the anaphylaxis that they're going through and adding par paralysis on top of that uh, is, is not without risk. No. So I, I think that this is a terribly difficult case and I think that... Uh, up until now, I think that this fellow did the best he could. And yeah, I, uh, Rick, I can just tell you right now, uh, I wouldn't want to be in this guy's shoes at this moment in time. I mean, we've all had a case uh, which is turning to stool around us, which is what's happening here. And uh, I have no no complaints about what he's done early. The argument would be, when do you intubate? What was the state of that patient just prior to, to them intubating? And it, the intubating them was a difficult problem, and there's, there's no question about it. If you practice emergency medicine long enough, you will have a difficult intubation. I certainly have had one. Uh, each one of us have had one where we didn't get the airway quite right. Well, you know, one of the issues here, too, is that you have an anesthesiologist who can't get the airway and you have the emergency physician who can't get the airway. So the question, does that lend support to the fact that you waited too long? I mean, is that de facto evidence that you waited too long? Well, that's going to be the argument if you're plaintiff's counsel. 
they waited so long to get an anesthesiologist that everything was swollen at that moment in time. And that's, that's what's going to happen in these kinds of situations. Um, I, I just, I just feel badly for that doc at that moment in time, because we don't always get it. And we would prefer not to force a tube in if we don't have to. So Greg, I'm going to read just a brief part of the deposition here. This is the defense attorney to the defendant physician. And this is regarding the question, if this patient actually did die, as the plaintiff alleged, from this hypoxemic damage to a heart and other bodily organs, end quote. So they say, question, is it fair to conclude, again, defense attorney to the defendant physician, is it fair to conclude from your testimony that during this entire process from her arrival until the time that she ultimately was intubated, that her O2 sat stayed fine. Answer from the physician, absolutely, she was oxygenating. Her blood gas showed that she was ventilating fine because her CO2 is okay. She tolerated oxygen saturation of low 90s while everyone was closely tending to her. She tolerated that fine. The issue was her hypotension. And if she had been intubated on the first attempt or not, they alleged that it wouldn't have mattered. So Greg, legally, you know, does it help us to say that this physician was not such a terrible physician that couldn't intubate the patient because the anesthesiologist tried and they were also unable? I mean, does that help us legally, the fact that the anesthesiologist did not initially get it? Oh, absolutely. What it basically says is this is a difficult airway. Here's somebody whose only job every day is getting an airway. Right. I mean, they don't do a lot of different things upstairs. You know, in goes the good air, out goes the bad air is the fundamental truth of anesthesia. Uh, and as long as they're doing that, they're in pretty good shape. Um, the truth is the most people in upstairs in the operating room on elective cases they handle those pretty damn well. If you look at a big hospital over a year, not many of those cases go wrong. Uh, a bad case like this one is rare for anesthesia as well. So here's how the defense proceeded with their plan to defend the case. They said that this was a case, quote, this is a case of severe refractory anaphylaxis unresponsive to both first and second line therapies and that multiple on-site consultations occurred and that the patient was judged to be oxygenating sufficiently and that at least at that time that an emergency surgical airway wasn't actually required. They had alleged also that the patient had received this Avalox twice in the past and because that that was unlikely the cause of the anaphylactic reaction. Now, whether it was or was not, this is how they chose to defend the case. So before I tell you how the case sort of ended, as part of this chapter, I actually include in here this um, insurance assessment. It's like a, um, a statement that's written out by the defense attorneys demonstrating to the insurance company what the potential liability is. So, Greg, I'm sure you've seen many, many of these. <laughs> I'd be very interested in your thoughts. I mean, how do they come up with a liability assessment? I'm guessing they use that in some ways to decide whether they should settle or go to trial. Well, uh, three hours ago, I was on the phone with the state of Louisiana with, with that exact question. You notice that up to this point in time, 
a definitive cause of the death has not been presented. Right. Everything is going to be supposition. We don't know exactly why, but what you have to be able to do is convince 12 people drawn from the voters' uh, rolls uh, that this was that everything reasonable was done in a correct time frame. If I was plaintiff's counsel presenting this case, I'd have everybody on the jury hold their breath, see how long they could hold it, and then say, that was 12 seconds or 15 seconds. How would you like to try and do that for three hours? Uh, you, you understand that you have to make a dramatic effort to say that they knew all the stuff to do. They did it. So you had to raise the bar to uh, do a surgical airway at that moment in time. Although the other thing that Mike brings out is that her O2 number was not bad throughout her stay. Every time, every number that he's mentioned has been, okay, 89, 90, you know, it's not like she's critical uh, in terms of her O2. And so I think that uh, they might say, you know, just because you couldn't get the tube in, that wasn't really a factor because uh, the numbers that we had with regard to her O2 uh, saturation were not uh, what we would view as to be uh, critical. So I'll tell you what happened is that the depositions were taken. I mean, many of them, and this went on for multiple years, and we know the average time from initiation of a lawsuit to resolution is about 45 months, so really almost four years. And as it ended, the uh, the plaintiff actually dropped this case. They uh, did not go to trial. The insurance company did defend their physician and did not ask them to settle. And in the end, I think that the plaintiff just decided it would be really too expensive to go to trial, even though there was obviously a, a terrible outcome with this. So uh, maybe just uh, quick uh, thoughts. I'm going to give, if it's okay, a couple medical thoughts at, at, as far as like some sort of take-home points. Then if each of you want to give a legal thought or medical thought, and we can then sort of move on to our next case. So the first one is obviously pretty obvious that IM epinephrine is the way to go, first-line agent. But I'd really caution us that it's not like you can only give that one time. Certainly, if a patient is dying and hypoxemic, even an older patient or someone with history of coronary disease, you're still going to get more benefit from risk. That's my first point. The second one is with true anaphylaxis. That's, you know, a four alarm fire. It's not the one where we just want to go back to the computer, put in a bunch of orders and go see our next patient. We want to really make sure that the nurse has received those medication orders and that they're given in a timely fashion. The third thing is if we do have this difficulty with intubation, which is pretty rare. I mean, in general, we are good at intubated and we are able to get that airway in place. But if that happens, or if it's something that we can really realistically assess might be a very difficult intubation, why not get some extra help? I'm guessing that I ask anesthesia to, to sort of be at bedside. I mean, honestly, once every five years, I mean, I, I'm thinking of the number of times in my career that I've actually asked for that. And most of the time they're there and you're tube the patient and you sort of wave goodbye to them and that's the way it goes. But it is sort of nice in this type of situation to have someone with that amount of expertise, in addition to our own expertise, of course, 
with that. So those would be my main really take home points with this case. Uh, Rick, I guess you could have some medical or legal and then probably Greg, you have a couple legal things, maybe how we can better document or other things that we could have done to make ourselves as well as the patient safer. Well, I, I just re- uh, reiterate the idea that you're not going to be criticized for putting in an airway too soon. You are going to be criticized for putting it too late. So that just should be, I think, just kind of in the back of your mind. But I also acknowledge that uh, we just don't want to do airways uh, in a cavalier manner. Right. Uh, so uh, it's there is a, clearly a dilemma here of when it's appropriate and when it isn't. Um, I wonder whether had she been given some uh, CPAP or something like that, whether that would have helped her at all. Uh, I mean, if she's got pulmonary edema, that's what we do in in congestive heart failure patients. And we're talking about fundamentally here, uh, uh, the idea of capillary leak and uh, pulmonary edema, not cardiogenic, of course, but but still the the idea of trying to push this fluid back or or into the... uh, interstitial space to get it out of the alveoli that kind of thing that would that would would have been nice to do but i think that uh our doctor here um was in a really bad situation i also if i was the plaintiff's attorney i would i would look at the log if i could at, at and, and a um to see what was going on what other things was this person being distracted from taking care of uh, our, our former patient here was that an, was that somewhat of an issue as well was there a crashing patient and was any backup called for the emergency physician if need need be or was there this physician trying to juggle several cases at one time um, and uh, I, I would think that that would be viewed as um, pretty culpable in terms of not necessarily the doctor, but the organization not not providing adequate staffing to handle uh, uh, the department and creating an unsafe department uh, or, um, because they didn't have any kind of uh, plan for dealing with capacity issues or severity issues. Yeah, we're always really reluctant to ask for help. We're self-reliant as physicians and clinicians, but sometimes, and maybe it might still be a person who's actually taking care of patients in the same department, asking for the, their help uh, is, is the way to go. And it's funny because Greg had mentioned about the Craig kit and with this very same physician when we practiced together, there was, I remember one time when I intubated a patient, he was standing by with the Craig kit and another time when the opposite occurred and neither time do we need to use the Craig kit, but we certainly were ready for that. Greg, do you have some legal take-home points with this case? Then we'll move on to our next case. Well, <clears throat> the first one is the doctor on the stand when he's answering questions needs to sympathize with the family. I mean, he's not happy about the outcome. He's say I'm sorry is not to say that I'm guilty. Am I sorry what happened? Absolutely. Do I, do I wish that, that, that there was something different I, I could have done? Absolutely, but there wasn't at that moment in time. And to go into an airway surgically is, is not a usual and customary action in the emergency department. It's not like every uh, third shift we, we open up an airway. It's not the way it is. The other thing is 
uh, he needs to make sure that that chart is gold, that he's kept the family involved, anybody's out there involved, they kind of know what's going on, uh, and never talk about any other patients in the department. Because at that moment in time, it's unlikely he had another patient as sick as this one. Now, you don't have to be standing right next to and holding the hand of the patient every minute because medicines are going to be given, anesthesia is going to be coming down, but it has to be very clear that their uh, focus at that moment in time was that dying patient. You know, I I'm like glad to, that you say that. Oh, go ahead, Rick. Uh, I would like to bring up one other point here is that um, in these cases – when it's pretty clear that things are really going bad or as soon as you see the patient come in that you know that this person's going to be a, uh, a sick patient and a challenge and that there are and time is going to be an issue we get into this issue of of documenting these times because everybody's going back and saying when did this start when was this done when was that done those kinds of things and so uh you you wonder whether documenting your documentation time needs to be reflected of when you did something or when you documented something. And I think the EMR tends to be, well, I'm documenting now, but the fact of the matter is that I, I, I'm documenting something now that actually occurred 10 minutes ago. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I reiterate that point that you made, Greg, as far as not documenting what else is going on in the department. If this ever, whatever case we're seeing of the 150,000 patients we'll see during the course of our full career, you know, if any of those cases do proceed to some sort of legal action, all that information is totally obtainable as far as how busy the department is. So putting that actually in our note, to me, it feels like it can only hurt us in the sense that like, well, why didn't we answer the question, Greg, that you just asked? Why didn't we call someone else in? Or why didn't we ask for help from someone else in the department? Right. Or why didn't we call down a specialist that's also in the hospital? You know, if you're going to make the allegation that you provided subpar care to a patient because you were too busy, man, you're just opening yourself up to tons of worms. And if it turns out that it is a legal case because of that, you could get all that information later. So I personally don't put that in my charts. Sounds like, Greg, you don't recommend doing that either. No, absolutely okay. not. Oh okay, yeah, well, I, think, yes. I think it's really yeah. a big red flag, obviously. Um, but I agree that you know all of this can be found out, and they're they're going to say to the jury, this, this doctor is taking care of eight other patients or ten other patients, and some of them are quite sick, and he, he or she failed to call in for any help, uh, or the, or worse yet, there was no mechanism for this doctor to call for any help. And by the way, in a lot of hospitals in the United States, smaller hospitals, I had a case uh, in Wyoming where there was a trauma case. And when we asked the doc about the help that could come in, there was another doctor 54 miles away. Right. Uh, I, I mean, you're not always at the Mayo Clinic. And I, I think we need to uh, adjust to that, that, that there isn't always... 10 levels of residents ready to jump in on the case. And um, most people need to understand that most of the hospitals they watch on TV programs 
are big teaching hospitals with all kinds of people around and that sort of thing. That's not the way small towns in Ohio are staffed. Well, I'm, and, and I'm particularly we recognize that. I'm particularly sensitive to that. For my entire career, I worked at a single single doctor covered hospital, and so the issue of these um, uh, groups of patients coming in that are coming in in waves or are unpredictable or there's a series of nasty cases coming simultaneously. Basically, you have no backup if you're uh, going to be alone. And I, and at the hospital that I was for 25 years of my career, the ER physicians did not like it, but we always had one doctor on call. Um, and we got smarter as time went on and brought in PAs and NPs to kind of be able to um, absorb some of that uh, frequent uh, groups of people that were coming in that uh, were just going to overwhelm one provider. Uh, but that didn't happen for the majority of my time there. Yeah, well, a lot of people who actually worked with you at that hospital, Rick, said when you were on, it was actually an uncovered hospital as opposed <laughs> to the one doctor covered. But that's okay. I, I'm sure you well, did you know, the best. Go ahead. I, I, I was of the view that our administration would basically say that um, your job is to cover this hot, uh, this emergency department. And, yeah, it may need one doctor for the vast majority of the time, but there's going to be a period when it that's not adequate. And in your contract basically says you're providing the uh, medical care, and in this case, you didn't do it, doctor. Yep. So let's move on to the second case. This would be a little bit quicker, and there's two really main points that I want to bring out about this case. And as you'll see, as we sort of go through it, you'll see what those those points are. But um, we can keep it pretty focused to these two points. And I think it'll hopefully be something that we realize and sort of can change perspective about our own practices that can hopefully make patients safer as well as our documentation more protective too. So this is a 33-year-old man. He came into the emergency department at 11.29 p.m. with a complaint of abdominal pain. Ever seen that patient before? Of course, we see this patient like every single shift, of course. And the vital signs, Pulse 107, the blood pressure, even the initial blood pressure, is super low with a systolic pressure of 67, diastolic 36. O2 sat was fine. Respiratory rate was fine also. The patient had a history of a bunch of stuff, including depression, anxiety, sickle cell disease, bipolar disease, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, because that's exactly what you need when you have those other problems, and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. True story. This is not made up. You can't make this stuff up, right? And so the documentation was 33-year-old man, and he came into a hospital, which is a large community hospital, over a 1,000-bed hospital, takes tons of referrals, tertiary care type of hospitals. So not this hospital that we just talked about, this small sort of rural kind of place. So 33-year-old man, horrible abdominal pain, pressure sensation started at 6.20 in the evening, two episodes of vomiting, used crack cocaine this evening. He had no symptoms whatsoever before the symptoms started at 6.20. He's never had pain like this in the past. And he um, had these past history uh, uh, things on his list as we had talked about before. On his exam, this is documented pretty soon after the patient arrived, thin male appearing older than stated age, marked discomfort. He, on his abdominal exam, well-healed surgical scar, firm, diffusely tender, moderate guarding, but no rebound. And the patient got some bental, pepsid, reglan fluids. And then 
he had some labs come back. White count was 18,000, hemoglobin 8.7, creat 1.7. His LFTs were fine, including lipase, and his lactate is 4.6. So a CT scan was ordered. Interestingly, they did document an acute abdominal series, which is normal. Um, personally, for me, seems like a total waste of time. That's not one of the main teaching points. I, no. I wouldn't sort of insult our viewer to our listener to say that that was a teaching point there. But, uh, but at any rate, they ordered the CAT scan. But where the story gets interesting is while he's waiting for the CAT scan to be done, his significant other, uh, the woman who was there with him, became irritated. And she said she needed to leave for work. Uh, they were going to do this with some contrast. So he drank one dose. And um, when the CT tech arrived to take the patient to the scanner, his girlfriend said, you know, I need to leave. If you want to ride, you got to come with me now. And the patient said, I'm not getting the CAT scan. I'm going to sign out, sign out against medical advice and leave. So this is our really first discussion point. And it's not just going to be our average AMA type of uh, discussion here, but my thought is, and I think, Greg, you and I actually have talked about this case before, maybe even a little bit of disagreement, which I love the fact that that's the case. But um, let me ask Rick first on it before I, I get your thoughts. I sort of know where your thought is with this. So with a patient in this situation that wants to leave AMA, Rick, first of all, would you, first of all, how would you document that? Second of all, do you think this patient should be allowed to leave AMA? Well, I think that uh, you'd have to determine whether the person's mentation was such that they were able to understand what you were saying and make, make a, a reasonable judgment. But I think that the key here is you have to make it very, 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 very clear that uh, your life is on the line here. You are in uh, a, a, a shock and you uh, are in definite need of critical care and that if you leave, there's a very high likelihood that you will die and that that should be said in front of his girlfriend, in front of the nurse. And, so, and, and um, I don't think you can stress it enough, the, the, uh, the outcome here. And this is not a case where you can say, okay, well, we'll give you some antibiotics and try to ameliorate the problem. We'll do the best we can. This has to be done in a hospital. And um, I'm not so sure that uh, how, how clearly the uh, physician made, it, made the case to the patient that he was critically ill, mortally ill. So, Greg, before we hear your thoughts, I wanted to explain just a little bit more on what you said, Rick, because, you know, this is not our chest pain patient with some T-wave flattening and AVL, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, this guy's got a, a pressure in the 60s, a weight count of 18, a lactate of 4.6. There was no question this patient was on his course to dying. And in addition to that, bringing in the thought of, like, shared decision-making. I mean, shared decision-making is choosing between two alternatively reasonable pathways. There's only one pathway with this patient, yes. which is to get the CT scan and probably then to go surgery. So um, before I hear your thought on the AMA part, Rick, um, here's how they say, here's how they did document this. The physician says, I did go back and speak with the patient and family members. Again, at this point, the patient was sleeping comfortably. The family member was markedly irritated and agitated and refusing to wait any longer, stating that we should discharge the patient at this time. We did discuss the incomplete workup and marked lab abnormalities, and the patient did sign the AMA forms and leave in spite of having continued abdominal pain. I've had extensive discussion 
with the patient and family members. We attempted to complete the workup, but they did decide to leave. So, Greg, tell me your thoughts on this. And, um, you know, I can then give you my thoughts after. And who knows, maybe they will uh, will agree this time through. So who knows? Yeah. What, what, what do you think here? All right. Let's let's go through three things. Hey, the AMA God. I, uh, I yeah. want to hear. Yes. <laughs> there are three things that need to be taken care of here. Number one, there's a family member who's unhappy. I take care of their problem. If she said, I've got to get to work, I'd say, Good, get to work. We'll take care of him. We'll make sure he's okay. Yeah. We sh- we're not going to interfere with you going to work. He doesn't want that. You may be the only one in the family who's making any money and <laughs> could pay the bill. We want you to go to work. But what you can't do is let her run this ship to the point that it, it it's, it's heading to, to be grounded Uh, because her need to get to work and you got to talk about we'll do what we can do have somebody have your friend uh, the policeman who's on that day take her to work do whatever you want but don't let her thoughts and her need uh, over override intelligent medical decision making that's just crazy although i think the other thing here is is that if both parties know that you are critically ill, sir. Um, this this would warrant you taking the day off of work if you uh, because this this is going to be touch and go here, and um, I think you would prefer to be with your husband or your significant other rather than being at work. Now that you know just how sick this uh, your your the patient is. Yeah, and that assumes, of course, that that uh, she does like him, you know, she could be heir to the estate. This could be a way of getting rid of him, collecting money, doing all the other stuff. I don't know. But the bottom line still is you're responsible to the patient, not necessarily to the family people. And I think you ought to do everything you can to get along with them, but they have to know exactly what you said. The other thing is you haven't convinced me that this guy who's draggy uh, and has uh, decreased, some decreased mental status, can he really make intelligent decisions about, about himself? I don't know that yet because it, it doesn't sound to me like, like somebody's listening to what's being said here. Usually when you stand in front of a patient and say, you could die. Okay, say the words with me now. I could be dead tomorrow. Why don't you stay? At that point, they usually don't argue with you. You know, I like that you say that. I tell my residents all the time, you know, you want to be like Hemingway when you're describing not only your physical exam, but also the progress note. I mean, you want to feel like you're at that bullfight, drinking wet wine, you know, smelling the sweat on the matador's body, you know? <laughs> I mean, you want to describe what's happening. And what I see as the description here is they said the patient is sleeping comfortably. Well, are they actually sleeping comfortably, dreaming of being at the beach, or are they unresponsive? You know, right, exactly. in addition to the fact that, you know, they had extensive discussion with the patient and family members. Well, 
did they talk to them or was it a interaction that they had? Because they don't really ever say that the patient or the family understands exactly what Greg, you had just brought up the fact that the patient might be dead tomorrow. I mean, that's a super, super important thing to bring across in your note as far as you know describing the situation. And Greg, I love how you talk about the fact that, you know, you don't talk about a three-year-old as being or a four-year-old, whatever, being alert and oriented times three. The description is the child is running down the hall, screaming and laughing, and the parent is chasing behind, unlikely to have meningitis or appendicitis. I mean, of course, you know, but that's a Hemingway-esque way to describe this patient. In this situation, I'm still left with a lot of questions. You know, was the patient sleeping uncomfortably or were they like decreased responsiveness? You know, they did document the fact that the O2 saturation was... 96%. However, the patient is pretty hypotensive. So did they actually have good cerebral hyper, you know, good cerebral perfusion or were they maybe, you know, not mentating well because they had some cerebral hypoxemia or not adequately, you know, um, perfusing their brain, right? Right. So I would have really liked in this situation, again, not our, you know, your chest pain patient with the T-way flattening, but you know, with this patient who we know is morbidly ill, this patient really does have, I mean, if you had five bucks to bet, is he going to be dead in six hours? You probably would bet that he would be. So, right. um, and, and I certainly would too. So that's something that I feel is super important to do. And I'm going to tell you what happened with this patient and why I sort of feel like that way, even after I give this other information. So seven hours later, the patient did return to a different ED, actually, came in by squad, and he arrived awake and um, talking, and within about 60 seconds of the nurse being in the room, the patient said that he needed to defecate, which for the uh, wizened gray hairs in the in the listening audience, you know, is never a good thing, right? And within a minute of that, he went into full cardiac arrest. He began to seize. Uh, the seizing was probably because of the fact, again, he wasn't really perfusing his brain. And despite prolonged attempts at resuscitation, the patient died. He did have a postmortem, which showed that he died from mesenteric ischemia. Mm-hmm. And probably what happened with the cocaine use is he probably had some sort of hypercoagulable situation. He probably had some chronic damage to the vessels, and then maybe even had some vasoconstriction, all of that, you know, contributing. So you know, probably had a clot at the SMA is how, how the thing happened. But my question is, when we went in to go ahead and discharge this patient AMA, in addition to the fact that he might have had not the ability to mentate well and make decisions because of his hypotension, maybe he has some type of encephalopathy in that same type of labelle indifference that we can get with a necrotizing fasciitis. I mean, it's really still the same underlying necrotic type process that could be occurring. Right, exactly. Your brain can go uh, right down the tube. It It's just permeated with small vessels if you're getting a diffuse contraction of those vessels What makes you think your thinking process is improved by less blood? What's still amazing, what's amazing to me is how adamant this family member was that you had to discharge him and get him out of there. That, that would be the kiss of death. Well, the other thing is that in in this record, I didn't see anything uh, by the nurses uh, suggesting that there was on any alteration. There's nothing by the doctors that the, suggests that there would be any kind of 
issues with regards to um, mentations. And so I think that it's kind of a stretch to say that, well, that was a, a an issue here. And I think what uh, ha happened is that this woman had such a, a control over this fellow that he 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 would he he was more in fear of staying at the hospital that his and if it didn't go with his wife then she'd beat him, beat the hell out of him. Hey, listen, I got one of those, and uh, I, I I do what my wife this, says. This, you know that this Rick. guy was just just intimidated to the point where he chose his wife over uh, sure death. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. you know, one point that I could sort of bring up as maybe as our closing point with this case is, you know, if you have a patient with ankle pain, putting in your general part of your physical exam, alert and oriented times three, is probably fine. I mean, I don't know that you guys are alert and oriented times three. Sort of seems like you are, though. You know, I haven't yeah. asked you the specific questions. On the other hand, with a patient who does have some potential for a stroke or other type of cognitive or neurologic type process. I will write alert and oriented times three dash. The patient does easily and readily know the day, month, year, and location, something like that. To me, it feels like that documentation is a lot more believable when you say those things specifically as opposed to just making a blanket statement alert and oriented times three. Right, exactly. You know, are they normally conversive? It, most people, when you talk to them and say, you could die again, they have some response to that. Well, that's this, just it, too. I, it's not very clear that um, this patient was told that you are critically ill, sir, and uh, you will die. It's Yeah, I agree that, you know, the chest pain patient, it's kind of, you might die, you know, but this is, you will die. And, right. and right. how effectively that was communicated, it's hard to conceive that if you did that effectively, the person would still leave the building. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And, and I can't believe how uh, laid back certain doctors are about, okay, well, kind of whatever you want. I never take that attitude. There's a reason I studied this stuff for a long time. Your odds are better going with me than what your, your uncle's view of, of what you got is. I mean, I just trust me. Um, I have a pretty good track record on this. Help me. Yeah, I, I think that the final sort of take-home point, there's a lot of words here, but the most important words, which is basically if the patient understands the implications of action, of their actions, that was not part of this progress note. So look, you know, I wouldn't have barred the doors and, you know, called security to prevent the patient from leaving. And I don't think any of us would have. However, maybe one thing arguably the most important thing that could have been done as far as our documentation would be to say that the patient does understand the implications. And we do document that specific note saying that they have the ability to make their own decisions. Yep. And with the patient who has a blood pressure of 67 and who is you know critically ill, you know, maybe if you had delved into it further, if we could go back in time, maybe they did have some type of encephalopathy that prevented them from making a reasonable logical decision. Rick, uh, Rick made a very good point, and that is just your saying so isn't enough. If the triage nurse, if the, the nurse who's handling the care, they've heard all of this discussion, I want their note down there right. that says, I tried to take care of this, and, and I... You know, I just think that uh, this is the kind of patient things aren't going to go well on. I, uh, 
I was sick recently and uh, I, I wasn't thinking straight. There's no question about it. I was encephalopathic. Uh, that doesn't mean I wasn't talking, but I wasn't right. Uh, and uh, we should recognize the fact that because you can make a few words, <laughs> it doesn't mean you're awake, alert, oriented, all that kind of stuff, which is mostly a lie anyway, because nobody asks all those questions. The other thing I think is uh, interesting is whether this person left on their own in terms of vertically or were they wheelchaired out. Uh, wheelchairing a patient out is really uh, an affirmation, I think, that this person is pretty sick. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Rick, how are we doing time-wise here? Cause I, we, I think it's time, Greg. I think it's the, that time. I think it is too. Um, I have, I have something different to present today in wine of the month. I'm going to tell you about a new service. It's called timeless wine. They're based in, uh, Winchester, uh, Virginia, Phone number 800-417-7821. Now, if you want to find some excellent wines, none of this is cheap. I know that drives Rick crazy. If we had Mel here yeah, listen, again, he'd jump out, off a... Of, I've tuned out already, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I understand that, but... They, they, I have tried their, they have a Chateau Neuf de Pop, which people who listen to this show know is my favorite. Is it expensive? Yeah. If you buy a case, it's uh, $598, which by the way, if you do the math, probably not more expensive than what you're paying at your local store. And it's fantastic. So you want the, the, uh, the uh, 2017 Chateau Neuf de Pop from Timeless Wines. Um, when I had it, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, is it going to be as good? It's fantastic. Uh, and I rarely say that, but, uh, and I know that, you know, certain places, Rick will open up a Mad Dog 2020 for you or something like, like that. But uh, this is real stuff. And I'm very impressed. Yeah, I usually have the Uber go down to the local liquor store in the corner. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, my that's version. right. You're, <laughs> you're sort of a Four Roses guy, and you can usually find your patients have a bottle of it hidden somewhere. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, go through these. Uh, these are actually kind of like coming attractions of what you're uh, going to be in your book now. These are just two cases out of, uh, and I'm sure... How many cases do you think that you uh, have? So we have 30 cases in this book. And wow. the nice part about this book is we have section editors that are all double-bordered EM and critical care folks that have another layer. And we have their comments in gray boxes. So they're sort of like your expert whisperer behind you. So we really try to put the reader in the footsteps of the emergency physician as this patient is decompensating. I, I, I love the format and the stuff that we've talked about is really just scratching the surface of this really pretty dense content that are in these chapters. Yeah. I'm really, uh, considering that you did a 32 page chapter on one patient, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I was, I was impressed. In any case, I should thank, be a patient. <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time and being with us. Uh, this is, uh, uh, episode number 12 now for you or with us. Uh, number 10, I have number on my, 10. Okay. My yeah. So. Yeah. This is, I don't know if we mentioned or not. This is February. 20, uh, 2000, uh, the 20, 
And uh, so we're doing okay. We're coming along just fine. And again, thanks for all of your continuous help over the years with this, Mike. We appreciate it. So until until next month, uh, it's Mike and Rick and Greg saying so long for now. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.